uh, don't really have to turn to a page in the Bible. There's no pew Bibles. Uh, if you've got the Bible on your phone, feel free to look there. But everything we need to read is printed in your, uh, your packet here. And as you notice, this is quite a long passage for me. And you're thinking, wow, is he going to go verse by verse? Yes, I am. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but my sermon's still roughly the same length as it always is. So, uh, but this is Matthew 23, verse 13 through 39, uh, and in this passage, Jesus truly is an aroma uh, of death to death, and it's uncomfortable uh, to be that kind of aroma or to even read our Savior being that kind of aroma, uh, but that's why it's so good to just move right through the scriptures, verse by verse, because we come along passages like this that we might not want to Uh, deal with otherwise. And so let's look at that together. This is Matthew 23, verse 13 through 39. And Jesus begins speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, saying, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides! You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, First, clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! 
You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken a part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. For truly, I tell you, all this will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as always, we come to you this morning asking for your grace and mercy and the power of your Holy Spirit to understand these words. These words are so biting, so hard to hear. And so we ask God that we would understand them rightly, that we would hear the heart of our Lord And that we would be moved, God, to live in light of these words, thankful for your forgiveness and grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What if you knew um, that an airline was loading passengers onto a plane, and that plane had a fatal malfunction? What would you do? I think for most of us, we would want to somehow intervene. We might even get so animated with our intervention that we might start calling people things like idiots and fools because they weren't listening to us. I can even imagine us risking our own safety and the potential of getting arrested by running out onto the tarmac, acting like a crazy person, trying to stop the plane from taking off. We would never let somebody run into a building that's on fire. If we knew someone was about to eat a bowl of soup that had poison in it, we would knock it out of their hands, burning their lap if necessary, to keep them from eating that soup. That's because we have an instinct to protect people from clear and present danger. Except when it comes to religion. For some reason, when it comes to the eternal danger people are facing, we are a lot a bit more hesitant. When it comes to what happens to someone after they, die, after they die, we don't act like that. 
but Jesus does. In fact, if you listen to Jesus, he sounds like someone who takes the eternal consequences that are facing people very seriously. And he saves his harshest words for people who presume to speak on behalf of God, but are lying to people and leading them astray. He uses his most passionate and intense language for the spiritual bus drivers loading people on that bus doomed to sail over that cliff into hell. In our passage this morning, Jesus is going to pronounce woes on the scribes and the Pharisees. He's going to be the aroma of death to death for them. And let's be honest, we're uncomfortable with that. We were uncomfortable with it the moment JP read that passage earlier. We were uncomfortable singing about it in Psalm 1. But Jesus is not uncomfortable here. He's pronouncing woes on the scribes and Pharisees, and a woe is a curse. It's a warning of judgment. It's, it's a way of saying the path you are on is the path to hell. And for the Pharisees, it's the path you're leading people on is the path to hell. And it's the complete opposite of a blessing. If you remember earlier in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount began with Jesus saying, blessed is the one who is poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And pronouncing a blessing on somebody is saying, the path you are on is the path to heaven. Blessed are the meek, the merciful, and the peacemakers. If that's the kind of person you are becoming, then you are on the path to heaven. But in our passage this morning, Jesus does the opposite. He's going to warn the scribes and Pharisees with curses that they stand condemned before God, that they're under God's judgment. He's going to tell them the truth, and then he's going to give them clear examples of how they're misunderstanding the law and how they're deceiving themselves. And as we look at what Jesus has to say to them, we too will be warned but we'll also take seriously how desperately we need to warn others. And then we will run to him again this morning for his forgiveness, for his truth, and for his mercy. So there are seven woes uh, that Jesus pronounces on the scribes and the Pharisees uh, in this passage. And it works not having an outline because I'm simply going to use those woes as the outline. We're going to look at each one uh, individually and briefly, um, and then we'll conclude uh, by considering how Jesus really feels about this situation and how we instinctively as Christians know we ought to feel about this as well. So we begin with the first woe in verse 13, uh, and if you have your passages there in front of you, uh, go ahead and look at them. I did notice that this printout has slightly different uh, language than uh, the ESV that I got from my Bible software. Uh, so uh, it'll be slightly different, but it's not off too much. So this first woe, though, uh, it helps us see that what you teach and believe about God 
has eternal consequences. So what you teach and believe about God has eternal consequences. A.W. Tozer famously said that what a man believes about God is the most important thing about him. So Jesus says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Hypocrites, somebody who just wears a mask, right? Who's not really what he seems like. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter it yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. There are two conditions a person must meet in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. They must repent of their sin, and they must put their faith in Jesus Christ alone. And the scribes and the Pharisees were shutting the kingdom in people's faces because they were keeping them from repenting of their sin, and they were keeping them from putting their trust in Christ alone. They were keeping them from repenting because true repentance comes from the heart. True repentance sees sin as God sees it. True repentance defines sin as God defines it. And when we repent, we have godly sorrow over sin. We confess it to God. We confess it to those we've sinned against. We're ashamed of our sin. We hate it and we turn to God. And we turn from it. But the Pharisees were blind to their sin. They redefined sin with such a low standard that made them think they were keeping God's law perfectly. In our culture, we we redefine sin differently, right? We don't lower the standard. We just say, that's not sin. (laughs) But either way, it's redefining sin as God defines it. And since they redefined sin, they couldn't have sorrow for it. They couldn't confess it. They couldn't turn from it. They didn't even know they were guilty of it. And they were teaching their followers the same. The other condition is you have to have faith in Jesus. And the Pharisees hated Jesus. They saw him as a dangerous threat. So if we're not pointing people to Jesus as God the Son who left heaven to live and die in the place of sinners who must repent of their sin and put their trust in him alone, then we're shutting the kingdom in people's faces. Which means every other religion, every other philosophy of life, and every corrupt form of Christianity that takes away repentance and faith are all cursed. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed is everyone who comes to him with nothing to offer. Simply to the cross they cling. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The second woe builds on the first The second woe, we see that false teaching confirms people in unbelief. False teaching confirms people in unbelief. Look at verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte or convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe. Here's why. 
Remember we said there's two conditions to enter the kingdom of heaven. We must repent of our sins. We must put our faith in Christ and Christ alone. Well, the human heart by nature hates to repent. We hate to admit we're wrong. We hate to not only feel shame and guilt. And the reason we know we hate to, hate to feel it is because what do you feel like when you're caught in a sin? What do you feel like when, when, you're, ex, when you're exposed to someone else? It's, it's literally probably the worst feeling. The human heart hates that feeling. So we make excuses for our actions. We blame other people. Also by nature, the sinful heart hates trusting in Jesus. We don't want to admit we are failures. We don't want to admit we can't save ourselves. And as Christians, right, we we have smuggled these same instincts into our Christian life as well. And it's slowly over our Christian life, the gospel thaws us out and, and warms us up to the reality that we don't have to hide. And so if someone's indoctrinated into a religion where they don't have to repent, they don't have to trust in Jesus, it makes it even harder for them to understand the gospel because they believe they're righteous already and they don't need Christ. They're either righteous already because we've lowered the standard of the law to something they feel like they can keep, or they're righteous already because we've said this is not a sin. Either way, they feel like they're righteous. I remember uh, when I worked at Kinko's when I was like in college and I had just started following Jesus, uh, the manager of Kinko's really stuck out to me because she was a Mormon. And because she was a Mormon and I was a Christian, we would talk about religion all the time. Um, But what was interesting about her is it was almost like her mind was taken over by goblins. There was like this fog that would almost come over her. When we we kind of get into the the nitty-gritty about repentance and faith and grace. And she would end up saying things, even if I would point out the inconsistency historically about the Mormon religion. I I would point out how the Mormon religion is essentially you're earning your way to salvation and, and you are living in fear that you're not good enough constantly. And she would say, well, I just have faith. She thought she was a good person. She had been confirmed in her unbelief. And so Jesus is saying that there were people who would have entered the kingdom of heaven if not for the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. There are people who would have been confirmed in truth But instead, they were confirmed in a lie and became twice as much a child of hell as the Pharisees, which means they became twice as blind to their need for a savior as even the Pharisees were. And Jesus is trying to warn the scribes and Pharisees that they're not only leading people onto a plane that's doomed to crash, but they're going to crash in that plane as well. Because as we'll see in the next woe, the scribes and Pharisees did not understand the true nature and purpose of the law. So this is verses 16 through 22, and here we see they did not understand the true nature and purpose of the law. Jesus says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? 
And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So the actual text of the eighth commandment says this. It says, you shall not give false testimony. And and if we hear that, we can tell that's courtroom language. And in the courtroom, a person is under oath, and so they're obligated to tell the, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. But what if I could take an oath that didn't place me under God? Well, then I wouldn't be giving false testimony, right? What if I just swear by the temple? I mean, it's just a building, no big deal. Then I'm not breaking the Eighth Commandment. But if I swear by the gold, well, it's a precious metal, and so we'll say that places you under, under God if you swear by the gold. What if I swear by the altar? Well, it's just, a, it's just an altar. But if I swear by the sacrifice on the altar, oh, well, then... Then I'm under an oath because, you know, that sacrifice is being offered to God. And this is obviously ridiculous. Jesus points it out as being ridiculous. First of all, everything belongs to God, right? It's his temple. It's his gold. It's his altar. It's his sacrifice on the altar. Everything on earth and everything in heaven belongs to God. So you're just as guilty for breaking that oath no matter what you swear upon. But the Eighth Commandment is is not about oaths, per se. It's about truth-telling, being a truthful person from the heart. Earlier in Matthew 5, Jesus says, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You see, the point of the Eighth Commandment is not to confine truth-telling to those times when we're under an oath. The point that God wants us to see is that He wants us to always tell the truth. Not only that, but He wants us to be the kind of person who when we say yes, people just believe us because we have such integrity. And the Pharisees had not only made lying an art form, but they had turned it into a list of technicalities. My uncle was an attorney, and he told me one time that, uh, that he got a guy uh, cleared from his crime because the police officer did not read him his Miranda rights. Well, does it matter that he really did it? Or you hear about stories, right? You watch like CSI or something, and and somebody's, uh, the evidence is not allowed into the courtroom because the police officer failed to get uh, a search warrant. And again, does it matter whether he's guilty or not? Or, Or do the technicalities matter? But God doesn't operate with technicalities. God wants truth and righteousness. God cares about the heart And these Pharisees are literally blind guides because they thought they understood the law, were leading people rightly into the kingdom of heaven, but they're really leading them into destruction. And if our heart is full of greed, leading us to deceive someone, we're guilty of lying, period. There's no technicality to avoid guilt because God looks at the heart. Which takes us to our next woe. We must not neglect the weightier matters of the law. 
We must not neglect the weightier matters of the law. Verse 23 and 24, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So the Israelites were required under the law to tithe a tenth of their produce. And the scribes and Pharisees were so meticulous about keeping that law that the most random pieces of produce, like their, their uh, uh, what do you call it, spices, they made sure they, they tithed a tenth of even those. And Jesus says, you're not wrong. You should have tithed a tenth of even those. But you should have done that without neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Because it was ridiculous to worry about tithing mint and dill and cumin while ignoring justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus says that's like straining out a gnat and then swallowing a camel. See, in Jewish law, there were animals that were unclean that you weren't able to eat. A gnat was the very smallest unclean animal, and a camel was the very largest unclean animal. And so if a gnat got into a Pharisee's cup of milk... They would literally strain out the milk to get rid of the gnat to avoid eating an unclean animal. And Jesus is saying, like, look, you're, you're worried so much about mint and dill and cumin, right? You're straining out the gnat. You don't even realize that you're taking down this huge, unclean animal. And the camel they were swallowing was ignoring justice and mercy and faithfulness. In the book of Jeremiah Uh, God is speaking to Jehoahaz, uh, one of the wicked kings of Israel, and this is what God says. He says, did not your father, speaking of Josiah, did not your father do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. And then God says this, is not this to know me? So God equates doing justice and righteousness, caring for the cause of the poor and the needy, he equates that with what it is to know him. So you might fumble your tithing of mint and dill and cumin, but if we've neglected justice and mercy and faithfulness, we're missing the main kind of fruit that faith is supposed to produce. So what is justice and mercy? Well, true biblical justice is simply giving others what they are due. So it's just to worship God and God alone because that is what he is due. It is just to love my neighbor by honoring authority, not murdering, not committing adultery, not lying, stealing, or coveting because that is what my neighbor is due. It's just for the government to punish crime, protect lawful citizens, reward hard work, and provide equal opportunities for everyone under the law. No matter background, ethnicity, or any other human distinction or disparity, because true justice is blind to those things. But mercy, mercy is giving somebody what they have not earned. Mercy is pity and compassion. Here's how John Calvin defines mercy. He says, mercy leads a man to endeavor to assist his brethren with his property, to relieve the wretched 
by advice or by money to protect those who are unjustly oppressed and to employ liberally for the common good the means which God has put into his hands. So true mercy is willing. It comes from the heart. It comes at personal cost. And God commands both. He commands us to give others what they're due and to give those who are suffering what they have not earned and to do both with faithfulness, which is just consistency over time. As Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice, for they shall be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. But woe to the scribes and Pharisees, they're upholding laws that favored the wealthy and the powerful in Israel, and they were not calling for or showing mercy to the oppressed. And that's because, as we'll see in the next woe, true transformation is from inside out. True transformation is from the inside out. Jesus says in verses 25 and 26, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. So if you brought me a cup of, you know, that had dried milk on the inside of it, and you said, hey, could you clean this so I could drink a glass of water, and I just cleaned the outside of the cup, you would rightfully be horrified. Because we all instinctively know that what really matters when it comes to a cup is whatever's on the inside. Is the inside of the cup clean? And it's the same thing with the heart. If the outside actions are clean, but inside we're full of greed and lust and anger, then we're guilty before God. And eventually, greed and lust and anger, if that's what's really on the inside, is going to leak out. Think about it. Sometimes it's the most uh, neatly put together person on the outside who surprises you by committing adultery or by embezzling funds because they had only cleaned the outside of the cup. And the only way to produce true good works is from a transformed heart. And Jesus is asking us, do we have a heart of repentance with godly sorrow over sin? Do we have a heart of faith that loves God and trusts in Jesus? Are we willing to take this message to those who are dying? That by grace, through faith in Christ, their sins can be forgiven and they can have a transformed heart because only a heart like that can produce true good works. The next woe, very similar. Here Jesus teaches that true purity is purity from the heart. So true purity is purity from the heart. Verses 27 and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So in Israel, if you touch a dead body, you are unclean. And remember, this is, this is at Passover, and so if you were unclean at Passover, you would not be able to eat the Passover meal and participate in all the festivities. And so what they would do in Jerusalem before all the um, travelers arrived is they would literally whitewash the tombs in Israel so nobody accidentally stepped on a tomb and became unclean right at Passover week. Because again, they really cared about ritual purity. But all those purity laws in the Old Testament were there as a sign pointing to purity of the heart. 
And so it doesn't matter if your tomb is whitewashed, if your heart is filled with dead people's bones and all uncleanness. If that's what's going on in your heart, then you're unclean. Because Jesus cares about the heart. We have to repent of our sin with godly sorrow, hatred from sin, as God defines it, from the heart. We turn in faith from our sin to Christ, trusting in his forgiveness and mercy. As Jesus also says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We're at our final woe. Jesus warns us that the self-deceived person is capable of the greatest evil. The self-deceived person is capable of the greatest evil. Look at verses 29 to 32. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. So at the time of Jesus, a popular thing to do was uh, prophets who had died is to, is to take their grave and build a monument there as a way of remembering their teaching and honoring their life. And even though the fathers of the scribes and Pharisees are the ones who persecuted those prophets and put them into their graves, this current crop of scribes and Pharisees truly believed that if they had lived at that time, they would not have done the same thing their fathers had done. But Jesus tells them, you admit that it was your fathers who killed them. And everyone in Jewish society at that time believed that if you were the son of a father, then you were just like your father. So Jesus tells them they are a witness against themselves, that they are sons of those who murdered the prophets. So you're their sons, you're a witness against yourself, you would have been just like your fathers. So fill up the measure of your fathers, which means basically finish what your father started and then reap the full consequence of what they stored up for you and what you are now completing. And then Jesus goes on to describe what that will be in verses 33 to 36. He says, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Remember, these are people who are shutting the kingdom of heaven and other people's faces. These are people who are making their followers twice a child of hell as they are. They're loading people onto eternal plane, doomed to crash. And so Jesus calls them snakes who won't be able to avoid hell themselves because he is going to send them wise men and prophets who they're going to kill and crucify and flog, starting with Jesus in a matter of days. They're going to hand him over to the Romans to be crucified. Many of you know the story of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He preaches the same message Jesus says here. And he is stoned by these Pharisees right afterward. And there will be many others. And as they do this, the scribes and Pharisees are going to fill up the measure of their fathers and complete their guilt and condemnation. 
Because of that, Jesus says in verse 35, that the blood of every righteous person, from the blood of Abel, who was the very first righteous person put to death in the Old Testament, to the blood of Zechariah, who was the last righteous person put to death in the history of the Old Testament, and everybody in between, all of that blood is going to be on their heads. And then Jesus says in verse 36, Truly I say to you, all of these things will come upon this generation. And here Jesus is prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which would take place in 70 AD. He's going to go into further details with that now in chapter 24. And the scribes and Pharisees are blind to the fact that they are persecutors and that with them there is no peace. But Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the fruit of the scribes and Pharisees' lives is the exact opposite of everything Jesus says is the fruit of true faith. And this is all pretty hard to to, to work through. This is one of the reasons I wanted to handle all of this in one sermon. It's hard to hear what it looks like to be on the path to hell. It's hard to hear that there are teachers who are leading people on the path to hell and that their ideas and what they're teaching really matters and that we must enter into that fray. But friends, if we're going to have a heart of evangelism, I went to a football game in Modesto yesterday and I, it was at Downey High School and I sat on the uh, home team side because it was in the shade I sat on the home team side for the first half, and I was surrounded. It smelled like marijuana. There were people who were either stoned before they got there, or maybe were smoking marijuana there. I don't know. Uh, almost everyone had a tattoo on their neck. They were hard people, and I wondered: Do they know the Lord? Do they know the Lord? And do we care that they're on a plane destined to crash in hell? Do we care? And do we care that our culture, Christian or non-Christian, is teaching them ways to be righteous that are confirming them in their unbelief? And that actually, they might not need to hear a woe from us. They might need to hear a woe. From, they might need to hear a woe. But Jesus, in verses 37 and 39, shows us what's really going on in his heart and what should be going on in our hearts as well. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Right? Anytime in Hebrew language, anytime you repeat a name, it's, it's, a, it's a way of showing that you are inde- that person is endeared. You're endeared to that person, right? So King David says, oh, Absalom, Absalom. When, when Jesus meets Mary and Martha, he says, oh, Martha, Martha. So, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, right? That's that's a way of saying, I love you, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus' desire was to bless Israel. 
His desire was to embrace them and be embraced by them and then grant them salvation through faith in him. But they were not willing. And so their house, which is a reference to the temple, will be destroyed. And unless they're willing to embrace him as the one, right, who comes in the name of the Lord, they will never see him again. We have to know the difference between the blessings of the kingdom and the curses that shut the kingdom in people's faces. And friends, we have to actually become comfortable singing about these curses as well. Because it's in our singing the curses. It's in our hearing them preached that we realize what a huge deal it is that people are in a plane that is on the path to hell. And that we have the one message of salvation. And if we share that message with them and they are not willing, then we are to grieve like Jesus grieves. We're not sharing this as a message to say, we're better than you. We know the right path. Ha ha. No. We do it with tears streaming down our face that they are not willing And then we look to Christ in repentance for all the ways that we treat the law as if God judges with technicalities, all the ways that we focus on outward purity instead of inward purity, and all the ways we fail to show true biblical justice and mercy. Thankfully, we serve a risen Savior who has gathered us under his wings in spite of our sin simply because he granted us the gift of repentance and faith. May we rejoice and celebrate in that. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would help us feel the weight of this reality that Jesus communicated to us this morning. Give us his heart for the lost Make us willing to knock the bowl of poison out of people's hands, if that's what it takes. That they might smell the aroma of death and be moved to run to Christ for infinite mercy and grace. In his name we pray, amen.